happy Father's Day. Today we are continuing our series, The Search for Truth, uh, that began last Sunday. And we're looking to examine what is truth. When Jesus was standing before Pilate, that's the question that Pilate asked of Jesus. Uh, We see it in John chapter 18. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Well, Jesus himself claimed to be the truth. We see it in John chapter 14 and verse 6 where Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Paul points us to Jesus and tells us that the truth is in him. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 21, where it says, Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. As Christians, we know and believe that Jesus is the truth. That he is God's truth and God's love that come together He lived a perfect life to save us from our sins by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. And so if we want to understand what is truth, we need to look to Jesus. That that question that Pilate was asking, the answer was standing right in front of him. It was Jesus. He's the truth. So our understanding of truth comes from the Bible. All of these verses that we just looked at are all from the Bible. And as Christians, we love the Bible. We, uh, every Sunday that you come to church, you hear a message that's from the Bible. The worship songs that we just sang are inspired by and quote from the Bible. We read the Bible, study the Bible, pray the Bible. We take our favorite verses and we put them onto pretty landscapes and we share them on social media. We tattoo words from the Bible onto our skin in Hebrew or in Greek characters. Christian organizations have gone out of their way to share the Bible and make the Bible available around the world. They put Bibles into hotel rooms. They make Bible apps and websites with different translations and in different languages. And so today, the Bible has never been as accessible as it is right now. But the question that I want us to examine today is, can we trust the Bible? Can we trust this book? It's a common story in church where a kid grows up in a Christian family They listen to Christian music. They watch Christian cartoons. They go to Sunday school every week. They are excited about God, and they love Jesus. And then at some point in their life, they move out from under that protective bubble, they go out into the real world. They encounter people who think differently than they do, who have different values than they do, who don't believe what they believe. They encounter people who are doubters of the Bible or maybe critics of the Bible. Maybe they go to post-secondary and they study ancient history or philosophy or world religions. And they find that their faith is shaken. When we take the Bible for granted, our faith can become cultural and not personal. We believe the Bible simply because we've never had a reason not to. 
It's just assumed and accepted. And when we're confronted with other views or beliefs or values, when we come across these doubters or critics or people who question the Bible, it can cause our faith to unravel. Maybe you know what it's like to have people in your family or in your workplace or your friends who aren't living according to the Bible, don't value the Bible, don't believe that it's true. What does that do to our faith? Well, C.S. Lewis talks about faith in his book, A Grief Observed. And he says, you never know how much you really believe anything until it's truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. It's easy to say you believe a rope to be strong and sound as long as you are merely using it to cord a box. But suppose you had to hang by that rope over a precipice. Wouldn't you then first discover how much you really trusted it? Do we trust the Bible? Do we believe that God wrote this book? When we're facing crisis or death, divorce, pain, when we're tested or tried or tempted, do we trust the Bible? Is our faith more like a decorative cord strung around a box? Or is it a rope that we could grasp onto when we are dangled over a precipice? Do we believe God wrote this book? Only 45% of believers read the Bible on a weekly basis. Do we trust this book? Well, today my goal is to present an argument for why you can trust the Bible. We're going to approach this in three different ways. First, we're going to look at how the Bible is accurate. I'm going to give you four points on the accuracy of the Bible. Then we're going to address some of the concerns. If you've ever had somebody come up to you and question the Bible or, or ask you difficult things about the Bible, we're going to address some of those concerns. And then we're going to look at how the Bible is prophetic. But we need to begin with just what is the Bible? Just the foundational understanding. So we're all on the same page here about what is the Bible? Well, it's one book made up of 66 different books. It was written in three languages. The Old Testament is in Hebrew, and there's passages in Aramaic, and the New Testament was written in Greek. It was written by 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years. Now, some of these 66 books are history and law, some are poetry, some are prophecy. And the Bible is divided into two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. But even better than the word testament is the word covenant, that it's the old covenant between God and man, and the new covenant that's made available because of Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible is the world's greatest work of literature. Do you like bestsellers? Then the Bible is for you, because there's never been a book that has been printed in as many copies as the Bible. 
But maybe that's too mainstream for you. Maybe you prefer to live on the edge. Uh, You like banned books. Well, the Bible is still for you because there's no book that has ever been as banned, outlawed, or burned as the Bible. The Bible is the most banned book in history. And owning the New Testament has been a capital offense in a number of countries. William Tyndale was burned at the stake for printing Bibles in common English. Even today, there are still a number of countries where owning a Bible is incredibly dangerous. The Bible is the world's most famous literary work. And so even if you're not sure that you can trust what the Bible claims, it's still worth your time to read the Bible just to understand its impact that it's had on the world around us. I remember uh, being a a nine-year-old kid. I was part of a group uh, of Christian scouts called Stockades. And uh, we would meet with our troop leader, and one of the weeks he was telling us all about the Bible, about how many books were in the Bible. You know, when you're a kid, uh, they expect you to memorize the names of all the books in the Bible, and so we were working on that. He's telling us about the Old Testament and the New Testament, and he had this giant leather-bound Bible. It was just stuffed full of bookmarks and church bulletins. And I was, I was into it. As a nine-year-old kid, I just kind of innocently asked him, like, man, have you read the entire Bible? And then he got this sheepish look, embarrassed look, as he kind of had to say, well, not the entire Bible. And as a nine-year-old kid, I'm just going, well, really? Like, if you're telling me that God wrote this book, you haven't read the whole thing? Like, what if there's something crazy in the middle and you just don't know about it? It's not just enough for the Bible to be accessible or the most popular book or the most banned book. We need to be able to know that the Bible is accurate. And I want to give you four reasons today why you can trust the Bible. First, there are more ancient manuscripts of the Greek New Testament than of any other ancient writing. So of all the ancient writings that we have, we have more copies of the Greek New Testament. There are 5,800 ancient manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. Now, the next largest number of manuscripts that we have for an ancient writing is of Homer's The Iliad. And there's 2,400 copies. So that's more than double the number of manuscripts that we have for the Greek New Testament. More than any other. In addition to the 5,800 that we have in the Greek, there's another 19,000 ancient manuscripts 10,000 of them are in Latin. There's 9,300 that are in other languages. Now, those are not as valuable to us because they've been translated from Greek into these other languages. But the 5,800 that we have are the most valuable. But this entire number of 25,000 ancient manuscripts, that's 10 times more than the next largest amount. That's enormous. It helps us to know that the Bible that we have today is accurate. It's the same as what was written thousands of years ago. 
In addition to all these ancient manuscripts, we also have over a million quotations by early church fathers who were writing letters and books to each other in which they quoted from the Bible. And so those quotations help us to analyze the Bible and see how it all fits together. Now, a manuscript can be anything from a scrap of paper, but on average, our ancient manuscripts of the New Testament are 450 pages long. This is an enormous amount of information that we have that helps us to know that we can trust the Bible. Okay, the second reason that we can trust the Bible is that there is a small time gap compared to other ancient writings. So the average ancient manuscript has a gap of 500 years between when it was written and the earliest manuscript that we have. So if we look at the Iliad again, from when it was written to the earliest scrap of the Iliad, there's a difference of 600 years. But for our Greek New Testament, the time gap is only a few decades. And we know this because the New Testament was completed at about 95 A.D., and the earliest ancient manuscript that we have of the Greek New Testament comes from between 125 and 150 AD. That's 30 to 50 years for our earliest manuscript. That's such a small time gap, especially compared to the average of 500 years. We can trust the Bible is accurate. Now, everybody check on your neighbor. Make sure they're still awake. I know I'm giving you a lot of information here today. Okay, I'm going to keep going. We still got more we're going to get through, but I do, you know, if you got to stretch a little bit, I know there's a lot coming at you here, but I got two more points about why we can trust the Bible. The third reason is archaeological evidence. And so I want to give you two examples. But first of all, archaeology is never going to completely prove that the Bible is true. There is always going to be an element of faith required for us to believe what the Bible says. But archaeology does help us to see that some of the things the Bible says are accurate, and we can see that in history. So two examples. First, there is a group of people in the Bible called the Hittites. And now, a hundred years ago, nobody would have believed that the Hittites existed unless they believed the Bible because there was no record of them as a people anywhere. And so critics of the Bible would make fun of the Bible saying that the Bible had just made up this whole group of people, the Hittites, until archaeological evidence showed that the Hittites are a real people group, that they lived in the Middle East for 1,200 years, just like the Bible said. So it showed that what the Bible claimed was accurate. There's another example, and it's the battle for the siege of Lachish. And so there is evidence that the battle between Sennacherib, who's an Assyrian king, and Hezekiah, a Judean king, in 700 BC, really took place as it's described in 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, and Isaiah. 
And so they've actually found Sennacherib's like throne room where they have his record of this battle that he waged against Hezekiah. And so that's an outside source that's proving what the Bible said. It's the people that the Bible said, in the place that the Bible said, at the time period that the Bible said. We can trust that the Bible is accurate. Okay, last one for this section is we have outside sources who write of Jesus, James, and John the Baptist as being real historical people. So there's a Jewish historian named Josephus who lived in the same time period of Jesus, and he mentions Jesus, James the brother of Jesus, and John the Baptist in his history of the Jews. And so This is somebody who was not a believer, he was not a Christian, but he shows us that Jesus and these people were in fact real historical figures, as some people and some critics of the Bible have questioned if Jesus ever actually existed, if he was just a made-up character, or that Galilee is a made-up place. But these outside sources show us the reality that this is a historical person. We also have Roman politicians, Pliny and Tacitus, who both mention Jesus as being a real person in the same time period that the Bible says in the same place. And so these things add to our understanding and belief in the Bible. All right. Now let's address some of the concerns that people have with the Bible. So if you've ever had somebody who's doubted the Bible or said that the Bible is just full of inconsistencies or errors, well, then this section you want to pay attention to. Okay, I got a coffee. Are you ready? Thank you. Okay, let's look at three concerns from the Bible. First, I talked about the time gap between the Uh, the New Testament when it was written, and our earliest manuscripts. And that time gap is so small. It's only a few decades. But for the Old Testament, that time gap is much larger. So between when the Old Testament was completed and our earliest manuscript, there's about 900 years difference. That's a lot. That sounds scary. But the reason that we can trust the Old Testament, and the reason that, we, that this situation exists is because of this. The Jewish scribes who would copy out the Hebrew Bible, whenever they had an older copy, you know, starting to fall apart, or they were going to move on to their next one, when that happened, they would ceremonially bury the Hebrew Bible because it had the written name of God on it, which was very serious. They didn't want it to fall into the wrong hands. And so because of that, these manuscripts have not lasted to the present day. So we understand why this has taken place. And there's also a group called the Masoretes who their thorough copying techniques help us to know that the Old Testament we have today is accurate. Because they went out of their way to count up all the words in a book. So they numbered how many words. They'd number how many words in a line. They'd identify what the middle word of a book was. And they'd record all these details to make sure that when they were copying out the Hebrew Bible, that they were incredibly accurate. And so because of this, we can trust that even though there's a larger time gap, that it's still accurate. And we're going to come back to this at the end again. 
All right, let's look at copy errors. If people have ever told you that the Bible is full of errors, they might throw out like a scary number, like there are 200,000 errors in the New Testament. And you hear that, and that's a scary number. But in one sense, it's true, but it's not entirely accurate. And so here's what we need to understand. First of all, that number of errors isn't just referring to 5,800 copies in Greek that we have. That's referring to the 25,000 ancient manuscripts that we have. So that's 10,000 more than the next source. So we have way more manuscripts, and so we have a larger number of errors. But the thing for us to understand is that there's 75% of those errors are spelling mistakes, and they are uh, minor grammatical changes. And so a historian can look at the text and immediately see, oh, this is a spelling mistake. Here's another one. And so they can identify what those errors are. The next largest group of errors is simply in word order. So you've got like a monk who's taken his job very seriously. He's copying it out. But then he gets a little distracted and he puts the wrong word in the wrong place or he reads from the wrong line and he writes it down. That's something that when a historian looks at it, when they're criticizing the text, they can identify it very easily. And so these are things that they know to be an error. Now, here's the point about copy errors for us. Less than 1% of New Testament errors are words that are seriously debated. And not one fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith rests on a disputed reading. So the fact that Jesus rose from the dead is not based on a spelling error or a grammatical mistake. We can trust the accuracy of the Bible. While there are some errors, they're easy to identify. And it's less than 1% of the words that are actually debated. <coughs> All right, our third thing that we need to understand that concerns that people have about the Bible is that there are a few larger variations in the text. And when we come across those things in the ancient manuscripts, uh, Bible historians and textual critics, they deal with them in three different ways. The first way is with a warning. So if you've ever seen at the end of the book of Mark, in Mark chapter 16, verse 9 to 20, uh, it, in your Bible, it may appear in italics, or it might be in parentheses. There will be a warning in our modern translations that says that not all of our early manuscripts contain these verses. And so what it is, is there's one copy, an ancient manuscript, one of our oldest copies of, of Mark chapter 16, where it doesn't contain those verses. There's another section where it contains space for those verses as if they were going to copy it out but then didn't. And then in the third copy, it contains the verses as we have it in the later uh, ancient documents. And so there's, we're not entirely sure why that is. But it's a warning that we've put into the Bible so we can understand that not all of the early manuscripts contain this passage. There's another part like this. It's in John chapter 8, the first few verses, and it tells where the religious leaders brought a woman who was caught in adultery to Jesus. 
And the earliest ancient manuscripts that we have of this passage don't contain these few verses. So it's another spot where there's a warning that's put in. And it's marked in our Bible. This is not a secret. This is not something that's kept hidden. It's something we can be aware of and know that while it's in later uh, manuscripts, it's not in our very earliest ones. And we don't know exactly why that is, so we've put a warning into the Bible. So warning is one way that these things are handled. Another way is with a correction. So in 1 John chapter 5, verse 7, if you look at like a super old version, like a King James version of the Bible, that verse will be longer than it is in our more modern translations. They've just corrected that verse. They found that, you know, maybe it was a scribe who there was a note in the margin and he copied that into his version and that continued on. Uh, but they've been able to look at the ancient, the oldest ancient manuscripts and determine that the few words of that verse were not a part of the original verse. And so they've corrected it to the shortened version. And in your modern translation, you'll just see a footnote. It'll have those words there. It's not something crazy or revolutionary. Again, it's not something where if we just pull this one section of this verse out of the Bible, the whole thing collapses. It's not like that. It's a correction that they've made. So we have a more accurate version of our Bible. And then the third thing that they do is just removal. And so if you go to look at Acts chapter 8, verse 37, in a modern translation, you'll find that there is no Acts chapter 8, verse 37. It goes from verse 36 to verse 38. And that's because they've looked at these ancient manuscripts and the amount of information that's been uncovered, and they've realized that that verse, the few words of it, were not included in the original uh, part of the Bible in these ancient manuscripts. So they've just removed it. And again, there will be a footnote in your Bible. You can look it up. You can see what those words were. It's not something that is a foundational doctrine that changes what we believe. But it's, these are good things for us to be aware of so we know that we can trust the Bible. Because if you've ever had someone who's doubting or throwing out these different things at you, it can seem a little scary. Now, people have been telling Christians or saying that Christianity is on its way out or the Bible isn't going to last. I mean, if we look at even just like our theme for this series, it kind of has a, a Star Trek search for Spock kind of feel. Well, the creator of Star Trek, his uh, vision of the future was that someday we would move past the need for a Bible and religion and we would grow beyond all these things and then we would live together in peace and harmony and we would have this utopia when we went out among the stars and everything was great until we meet aliens. And uh, So this is not a new idea that Christianity or the Bible is on its way out. In fact, hundreds of years ago, uh, the French philosopher Voltaire, he famously said that he believed that within 100 years of his death, that the Bible would be gone, Christianity would be dead, no one would be reading it or believing it any longer. And what actually took place was that within 50 years of his death, his estate was purchased by the Bible Society. And they used his printing press to print Bibles. God wrote a book. 
And God has protected his book. No matter how many times it's tried to be banned or burned or outlawed, God has protected his book. We have more copies than any other ancient writing. We can trust this book. All right. We got one more section, all right? Hang with me here. One final part here. We're going to look at how the Bible is prophetic and how the Old Testament and the New Testament work together. So up till now, we've kind of been looking at these external sources that help us to understand the truth of the Bible, the accuracy of the Bible. But now we can look within the Bible and see how it proves itself between how the Old Testament works with the New Testament. And so in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, there are these prophecies, these signposts that point to Jesus. And now that we can see the record of Jesus' life, we can look back into the Old Testament and see all these promises, all these prophecies that point to him. There are 61 different prophecies in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the life of Jesus. We're going to look at just a few of them today. So hundreds of years before Jesus was born, it says in Isaiah chapter 7 that he would be born of a virgin from the lineage of David, born in Bethlehem, rejected by his own people, betrayed by a friend, sold for 30 pieces of silver, that he would stand silent before his accusers, that he would be pierced, and Jesus was pierced in his hands and his feet, that he'd be crucified with thieves, buried in a rich man's tomb, and raised from the dead. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born, these prophecies, these signposts exist. And so we can look at this as another evidence that the Bible is true and accurate. But how do we know that these Old Testament prophecies really are accurate, that they're really the same as what was originally written. After all, I shared with you that there's that 900-year gap between when it was completed and our earliest manuscript. What happened in those years? Well, in 1947, there was a shepherd boy in the Middle East who picked up a rock and threw it into a cave and heard a crash And he went in to investigate, and he found these earthen vessels with these ancient scrolls that were inside of them. And archaeologists and historians, scientists, they came in and they found 100,000 fragments that they were able to piece together into 800 ancient manuscripts. And included among those was a complete copy of the book of Isaiah that was 1,000 years older than the previous oldest manuscript of Isaiah. And historians and archaeologists, they were so excited to be able to see what has changed in a 1,000 years of being copied and written out again and again. What are the differences going to be between these two versions? And so they looked at a specific chapter, like Isaiah chapter 53, and on that chart that we listed with prophecies, there's a number of prophecies that point to Jesus that come from Isaiah 53. And so they looked at this chapter, 
And in Isaiah 53, there are 166 words. And so what they found as a difference in a thousand years was that there were 17 letters in question. Ten of those were spelling errors. Four of them had to do with the style, like the use of conjunctions and putting together the sentence. And the remaining three letters formed the word light. That in verse chapter, verse 11 of chapter 53, that it added, the ancient version added the word light, which does not greatly change the meaning of the verse or of the passage. And in fact, another one of our ancient manuscripts of Isaiah, the, the Septuagint, has that word in it as well. So in a thousand years, all that had changed, all that they were looking at was one word out of 166. Friends, God wrote a book. And we can trust this book. It is accurate to what was originally written. So when we sit and read this book, we can know we're reading what was written thousands of years ago. And we can trust this book. But what do we do with this book? What do we do with this? This book that God wrote for us. After all, only 45% of believers read this book on a weekly basis. What do we do with this? There's three things that we do with the Bible. First, we can read the Bible. We can read it. Even if you don't believe it, you could read it as literature and see its impact on the world. But we can read this book. If God wrote you a book, wouldn't you want to read it? We can believe this book. We can put our faith in God and in his word. It's not enough just for us to read it, but we can believe that this book is true. It is accurate. It was written by God for us. But it's not enough for us to read it and believe it. We need to live this book. We need to live out what we believe and put our faith into action.